Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. But Isaiah was a priest at one of the Levitical uh, tribe, and he served in the temple in Jerusalem about 700 years before Jesus came. So we're going back, we're getting close to 3,000 years ago. Amazing, isn't it, to have these words from that long ago and so relevant to today. And the situation at about that time was, was this. Um, you may remember from last year, we went through a bit of the, the, the big picture of the Bible. And there was this guy called David who God chose to be king over the whole of Israel. And he ruled the kingdom. Very powerful, very strong king. Um, he's generally described as being righteous or godly, but there are some very serious things that he does wrong. His son Solomon uh, takes over from him, and he asks God for wisdom. And he uses that wisdom to rule the kingdom. It prospers. But the Bible tells us that Solomon, particularly as he gets older, he acquires uh, wealth, he acquires power, and he acquires wives. He treats women like property. He uses them to build political alliances and brings the gods of the kingdoms from which he's married into uh, with them uh, into God's kingdom. So the people are led astray. Uh, Solomon's heart is turned. And the result of that is that God starts to bring his discipline, his judgment on Israel. And the first result of that is that after Solomon dies, his son loses control of the kingdom. It gets divided, the civil war. Uh, there's a guy called Jeroboam who says, I'm taking most of the people off uh, to form a new kingdom. Uh, so you end up with the kingdom of Israel, which is 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel go off on their own. It's a reasonably prosperous little kingdom on the big trade routes through the Middle East, uh, leaving just Judah in the south. And these two kingdoms end up you know, like siblings falling out, just in constant rivalry between each other. And about the time of Isaiah, the southern kingdom has had a reasonable amount of stability, but isn't that prosperous? The northern kingdom has just constantly seen changeover of different dynasties, different uh, coups that are, are launched, but they're constantly trying to compete against each other. And the northern kingdom, Israel, they've uh, thought, we'll go and get some help to really, once and for all, sort out Judah. So they've gone up to Syria, another small kingdom in the north, and said, let's form an alliance so we can sort out Judah once and for all. We'll take them on, we'll defeat them, we'll share the spoils, that'll be great. It's, it's a bit like um, Walsall Town, which is football team just across the, the border from Great Bar, and, and King's Standing, uh, they're playing the mighty Bradford City um, on Tuesday night Ooh. in Coach Game and uh, down in League Two. Now, this is a bit like Walsall saying, Right, we're going to sort Bradford City out. What we'll do is we'll put our team together with West Bromwich Albion's <laughs> so we can take on Bradford. I'm thinking that's it sorted. 
but not realising that there are far greater, bigger teams that can wipe out Warsaw and West Bromwich put together. You know, against Manchester City or um, Arsenal, they would have no hope whatsoever. And that's the picture. Here are these little kingdoms joining together to find another way. And one of the messages that is coming through in Isaiah, the status of the coming weeks, is there is a bigger threat coming. Because to the north, uh, northeast of Syria, a mighty empire called Assyria is stirring, and they're sending their army across. The big message through Isaiah is that because of the sin of the people, this is God's action, this is God's judgment, and they're not going to stand a chance. And that's the context in which Isaiah begins to prophesy, and he gets this vision. Um, a king called Isaiah has just died, and he's in the temple serving. He sees this vision of uh, God at work. God is seated on his throne, and Isaiah gets this vision. Uh, but we're going to read a little bit more to get the, the whole of the chapter, and we're going to come back to this. Chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Who should I send as a messenger to this people who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Close their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survives, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. One of the reasons that we come to um, gather together as part of the church is the expectation that if we are meeting here then we're going to go away from here changed something different about us and i don't mean in the sense that some of us went away last week changed with dodgy stomachs and that kind of thing kind of, that's not too soon so um, real life changing difference there should be something significant and special. I, you, you, could, you could put a film on and, and watch your candy. Sarah and I, um, we watched um, Greece, we uh, a film yesterday. We watched Greece in the second Mamma Mia film yesterday. And, you know, it left us warm and fuzzy at the end of it. But, not really a big difference. You can go and watch, so you can go and watch Breakfast City against Warsaw. <laughs> 
you know, you make your way exhilarated or more <laughs> well, likely just deflated and bored at the end of it. It's not really going to change it, but our expectation should be that we go from here, there is something different, something has changed us. And so I want to ask, how will you, how will I be changed this morning? I want to suggest three things that we should be hoping for, longing for. We say we want to go away changed like this. So here's the first change. That we will go away seeking a clear vision of the Lord. Wanting to know Him and to see Him better. To see Him for who He is in all his glory. Because that's what happens to Isaiah. That's the thing that really starts to change Isaiah's life. Where, where, where six chapters in Isaiah's already been prophesied. He's got this burden from God already. But something really shifts here. What is it? But what is it? He says that there he is serving, seeking to speak for God, act for God. And then he gets this vision. And we could spend ages talking about these six-winged creatures, these seraphim, and what they're doing, and that kind of thing. But actually, that's not where the focus is. Now, the focus is on the Lord, God, and he's described as sitting on this great big high and lofty throne. And uh, the, the, his robe, or the train that's on the bottom part of his garments, they fill up the temple where Isaiah is serving. In, in other words, the, the, the image we're meant to get here is that Isaiah is, is in the temple, it's a room like this, he looks and he sees God not just filling or sitting in the temple itself. The people would have thought of the temple as representing God's presence. Uh, being the house for God. Uh, but actually, God is greater. God is eternal and God is infinite. So that God is great and transcends the universe. And he looks and sees God. He's on his throne in heaven. And this temple down below, this great big building in Jerusalem, well, it's, it's just a place for his feet. Uh, so the, the, the altar and the Ark of the Covenant is not meant to picture God's throne, it's meant to be like the footrest for God, just to get the scale of how amazing God is. God is there and is in his glory, these amazing creatures, these seraphim, they can't look at him, they need to shield their eyes as they're flying around and as they're, they're speaking. And they declare that God is holy. He's the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of heaven's armies, given a sense of God's power and strength that God has infinite resources to call upon to protect his honour and to protect his people as well. And when Isaiah sees how amazing God is, how powerful, how strong, how glorious, but also how holy, how different he is to sinful human beings, it prompts three things. Verse 5, it prompts repentance. It says, I'm, I'm doomed, it's all over. I'm a sinful man. That when we see what God is like, 
the first thing that it should do is just really show up and highlight what I'm like, how fragile, how weak, how failing. Now that's why we often talk about God as light. Uh, the light shows, you know, when you, you, you think that you've done a, a decent job of hoovering and dusting the house, and then your wife walks in and switches the light on and says, <laughs> look at all of this here. The light of God's glory that shows up the utter failure of my life. As I recognise I'm a sinner, how am I going to speak with God when I carry guilt and shame? But it also brings forgiveness and cleansing. So the, the seraph brings this call from the altar, touches his lips and says, you're purified, you're forgiven, you are cleansed, you can speak. And that's why Isaiah has been able to respond when God calls him it says, who is ready to go for me? And I said, ready to say, okay. <laughs> Isaiah is able to say, who will, it's an amazing switch over to it, who will send me? And God says, who will send you? And Isaiah says, I'm ready, send me. So, lips are purified. Batteries are recharged. <laughs> Isaiah is ready to go. That's great, isn't it? And we are ready then for Isaac to go with this beautiful good news message. And, and I've heard this Bible passage preached so often, um, particularly at sort of mission type events, and when people talk about people being missionaries or that kind of thing, or would you consider using your gifts to preach? And that's really nice. That boom, who will go send me? I'm, I'm ready. What's this wonderful message of good news? And then God says, this is great that you're ready to go, Isaiah. This is the message I've got for you. Verse 9 to 10. And it's a shocking message, isn't it? Because God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to harden this people. I'm going to harden their hearts. I'm going to make their ears heavy or sort of like clogged up with gunk. Their eyes drooping like somebody falling to sleep into the slumber. So the people are going to be feeling you, but they're not really going to be able to hear you. They're going to be seeing, but not able to see, not able to understand, to comprehend, to, to grasp it. Like somebody in this slumber, somebody comatose. And in fact, God says to us, in fact, this is going to be happening through the message. So it's not just, this is what the people are going to be like, but God is saying, I'm going to be doing that. That's shocking, isn't it? It disturbs you. You might have noticed last week that um, Zoe read from. Uh, Matthew's Gospel and we were looking at the parable of the sower and uh, Jesus actually takes these words and says this is why I speak in parables because this is part of what God is even doing at the time that Jesus comes using the message not as we would expect to open eyes and ears and hearts but for some specific reason to close them in this context 
why would God do that? I know it's one of the easiest things for us to do as, as Christians is when we read the Bible and we find something like this that is a little bit difficult, which isn't quite what we expect to see, is to say, I'm going to move on. <laughs> but actually what we're meant to do is when we hear something like this, when God says, I'm going to disagree with you, I'm going to shock you and surprise you, is to pause and to stop and to say, God, why are you saying this? So why is God saying this? Well, Psalm 115, verse 8 to 15, you can look this up in your own time, has a very similar kind of pattern of language of, of uh, eyes that can't properly see, ears that can't hear, lips that can't talk, talk that are, are done. And the psalmist there is talking about idols. Uh, so, if you worship an idol, something that you've made, you, you can make this thing, um, and you can get it carved out of wood or stone, and you can carve in the eyes, you can get the lips and the ears and things like that, and it will look, you can make something that looks very impressive, very lifelike, but it's actually dead. Can't do anything. And the psalmist talks about these idols that have these eyes that can't see, these ears that can't hear, and he mocks the, the people who make this. You make these idols and you go and you pray, but they can't hear you. You, you bring food to the idols for some reason. Why? They can't eat it. You go to the temple to hear these idols speak, but they can't talk. What are you doing? But then at the end of that little section, the psalmist says this, that the people who make the idols become like them. <coughs> we become like what we worship. In the same kind of way, you know they, they talk about pet owners. Um, I don't know if you've got a cat or a dog, you can play a game this morning, can't we? We can get people to put their hands up. Uh, if they've got a dog, and then we can guess what dog they've got, don't we? <laughs> we won't do that, because it could get really brutally offensive, couldn't it? But you know, you know that thing that, 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 thing that, that pet owners become like their pets, um, or possibly they pick pets that look slightly like them. Well, we become like our idols. We become like what we worship. That we take on the characteristics and the values of the things that we worship. Now, I would suspect that most of us here haven't been carving and chiselling things out in our garden. I wouldn't assume it because in our, our culture today, it's actually a lot more of that kind of superstitious yeah. idolatry going on along. And you will find people here in King Standing that will have. Uh, icons and pictures and little carvings and things that they're putting their trust in. And you may even know people and they've, they've taken their Bibles and they've turned them into idols rather than hearing God speak. They've used them superstitiously. I, I had a friend who uh, we started to look at the Bible together and they said this is the first time we've read it. 
Yes. And we, we laugh a little bit, but actually that's the kind of thing yeah. that people do with those objects. And whilst we might not do that with objects and things like that ourselves, there are ways that we make, we create idols for ourselves in our lives. What is an idol? Uh, well, an idol is whatever we are looking to, or whatever we're putting our trust in, Instead of seeking satisfaction and hope and protection and identity in God alone. Now, quite often idols are things that we fear. It's things we fear that often become our idols, but we we see something as dangerous, as risky, something that could harm me. And so we try to appease it. Or we look to something else to protect us against this And an idol can be uh, a priority, a value, it can be our work, it can be our dreams, our ambitions. An idol can be a person that we look to, that we fear, or that we respect, and so we constantly try to keep happy, try to keep appeased, and try to copy all imitate anything that we look to either for approval, security, or comfort. And God says to Isaiah that the people are going to be made like their idols. And this, this act of judgment, of discipline, is, is saying that you have taken on the values you become like your idols, you're going to become completely like them. But why does that God do that? Uh, well, these idols that the people have been collecting and worshipping, they weren't meant to flex on worshipping. Deuteronomy 7 had told the people when they first came into the land that they were meant to devote all of these idols for destruction, to destroy them completely. And they failed to do that. So what is going to happen? Uh, well, um, the idolatry of Israel and Judah is going to be devoted to destruction. And because they've absorbed, identified, we've got closely linked to those idols, then the people will share the fate of the idols that they've chosen to worship. they were going to experience that removal from the land, that destruction that the idols have. And that's God's plan, God's purpose, to purify his people, to remove the idolatry completely. So the first change that we should be looking for in our lives as a result of gathering together is that we seek a clear vision of the Lord. The second one is that we should go away with the desire and intention to banish idolatry from our own lives. The New Testament, Romans 13, puts it in these terms. It talks about putting to death sinful desires. So what are your idols? 
and they will be different for each of us, but there will also be some common things. Things that you seek approval from. Things that you seek comfort from. Things that you seek security from. Here's the third change. That we will find rest and hope in Christ alone. This chapter is very bleak, doesn't it? In fact, much of Isaiah looks bleak. But it's not bleak because there's this light of hope that shines all the way through the book. And here we get some of it. There's going to be this utter destruction. The oak tree um, leaves us stump. this idea of um, these trees being chopped down, these um, idols that have become... Uh, trees that have been used to worship, chopped down, thrown in the fire, taken out, it's still not properly burnt, so put it into burn again. But there's this stump left, and from that stump, new life comes, a seed, a root of hope. And that's a theme through the Bible, Genesis 3, verse 15. God, when he is judging Adam and Eve, he says to to the serpent, but the seed or the, the descendant of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And in Genesis 12 verse 7, Abraham is promised that uh, his seed, his descendant, and Paul, uh, the apostle says that it's singular, it is one descendant, one, one seed, will bring hope and blessing to all people. But as the idolatry is removed, as things are purified, as all of this is stripped away, they get to where they need to be. Romans 8 verse 3 says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that for our sake God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is that promised seed, the holy descendant, the, the remnant, the one that is left when everything is stripped away left, it's Jesus. Where is our only hope, our only rest? It's in here. You see, if we become like what we worship, if we take on the life of those idols, and therefore take on the death of those idols, then if Christ is the one who should be the true and only object of our faith and our worship and our trust, then when we put our trust in him, when we worship him, we become like him. Like him in his life and his death. Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The people of Israel were 
because they've identified so closely with these idols, they've taken their idolatry on themselves. When it came to destroying the idols, they were going to be destroyed with them. They were going to experience death and exile with them. Jesus came and said, all of that, all of that that will destroy you, I take on myself so that that sin, that idolatry, that evil was condemned in him on the cross so that we don't have to bear that penalty of death and hell. But we can identify with him and become like him in his death and resurrection and be united to Christ. And if you put your trust in Christ already, that's exactly what our identity is, alive in him and dead to sin. But there is that ongoing life responsibility we talked about in terms of sanctification last week of putting to death those idols, seeking that better vision of God and ensuring that our trust is in Christ and in him alone. I want to give this opportunity to respond to that this morning.